0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Season four of Star Trek Discovery featured one of the most exhilarating and intriguing story arcs in all of Trek. The mystery of the Dark Matter Anomaly, or DMA, and first contact with its creators, Species 10C. As a scientist myself, I was simply overjoyed that science set the foundation for both the DMA and the 10C. We explored all of these themes thoroughly with Dr. Aaron McDonald and Dr. Mohamed Noor on episode 132 of Strange New Worlds. But it wasn't just science that made this season so captivating. Linguistics also played a major role in shaping our hero's truly alien encounter with Species 10C. So today, we are joined by Dr. Sherry Wells Jensen, a professor of linguistics at Bowling Green State University. Sherry was a part of the team that concocted Species 10C's language, and how the Discovery crew would figure out a way to communicate with these creatures from beyond the Milky Way. In part one of this conversation with Sherry, we'll get to know her Star Trek fandom, learn how she was approached to contribute to Star Trek Discovery's fourth season, and discuss the very nature of language and thought. Let's fly. Professor Sherry Wells-Jensen, welcome aboard Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Yeah, Sherry, I'm so excited to speak to you today about your role in developing Species Tensi's language in Star Trek Discovery's fourth season, as well as your super exciting work on disability and inclusion in space exploration. But before we dive into all of that good stuff, I think we should get to know you a little bit better. Prior to being approached to consult on Star Trek Discovery, were you a fan of Star Trek?
1: (laughs) What kind of indignation should I even summon that you even asked that question? Oh my God, Star Trek. <laughs> From I, I, I came up with the first generation, you know, with the with the violins and the weird background music and the, the lots of Foley <laughs> with the clicking shoes and, and all yeah. the Spock, Spock, all that kind of thing. <laughs> oh man, I was slain. I could not, I just didn't even know, I didn't even have words. And when I was in grad school, when Next Generation came out, It was like my roommate and I were monsters. We just were. We are going home. No one speak to us. The phone is off. Whatever. The door is closed. Nothing. And we would get. (laughs) I believe the the snack of choice was tubes of raw cookie dough. And we would lay. (laughs) We lay on the living room floor like beached whales or something. And we would just geek out on
0: this. Oh, that's fantastic!
1: So amazing. I am such a fan.
0: I wish I had that kind of experience uh, when I was in grad school because when I was in grad school, there wasn't a live Star Trek. TV show on the air or or streaming. Uh, It was during those years in which I guess every couple of years we would get one of the J.J. Abrams movies. And then right at the end of grad school, Star Trek Discovery came out. And that's when I decided that I had to start this podcast, because finally we were getting a new uh, weekly Star Trek series, and I I wanted to talk about it with my friends. So that's kind of how the podcast came about. Um, Have you been following the latest shows, Discovery, Picard, Strange New Worlds? Yes. Awesome. I
1: mean, like, don't tell any of my old professors this, but I don't quite have the time that I had in grad school to do things like that. (laughs) I mean, we just carved it out because we were young and we'd stay up till 4 a.m. if we had to, but we we got it in there, right?
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, <laughs> I, I I know what you mean. <laughs> I mean, so when I was younger, I grew up in the '90s, surrounded by TNG, uh, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager as a kid, and I would always have to battle my parents about whether or not I should do my homework and finish it before Star Trek came on, because back then it was like live on TV, right? You yeah, were, yeah. You, you couldn't just like stream it whenever you wanted to do. So I had to I had to really argue with them. I said, "No, Star Trek is on right now. I'm going to finish my homework." after the show <laughs>
1: i mean you miss your shot and you can't miss it because then like how many months did you have to wait until the rerun came
0: yeah uh well i'm glad we have the power of streaming now <laughs>
1: we do but there was something glorious about that that time 100% time sensitive thing it was an event it wasn't That's true like Star Trek didn't wait for me to make the popcorn, right? They were on and I had to get yeah. there. And that added just I don't know, just this sense of holidayness and wonder about it. Whereas now I'm like, do you want to watch Strange New World? Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh when? <laughs> I don't know.
0: Uh, <laughs> you know.
1: Uh. I don't
0: know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's also why I miss going to the movie theater for Star Trek. I think it's that kind of excitement, that anticipation of the the timeliness of it all. Oh, this thing is coming out right now and we've got to be yeah. first in line. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. Yeah. And I remember I went to the, the very first Star Trek one a million thousand years ago when it came out, right? Like a whole epic ago. And I remember I went to I bought a ticket. I bought like three tickets at the same time. And I just cycled. I'd walk out the door and then I turned around and I went to the popcorn, got more popcorn, walked right back in. I, <laughs> nobody wanted to do that with me. They were like, no. <laughs>
0: Which movie was this one?
1: It was the very first Star Trek movie.
0: Oh, the motion picture.
1: The motion picture, yeah, Star Trek. The wow,
0: motion. yeah, very cool. Yeah, I, I suppose at that time, uh, it, it had been a couple of years, uh, more than that, actually, maybe like a decade since the original series had stopped airing new shows right so that was a big event a big event
1: it was a big (laughs) event because when the because the i caught the the first generation star trek in the um in the mid 70s right so Mm -hmm. i was doing reruns yeah Uh, so it wasn't that long for me but boy i was fierce about it so when that movie (laughs) came out people like i I don't I don't want to say this at you, but maybe it wasn't the best movie ever. I'm like, no, shut up. It has no flaws. It is the perfect thing. It is beautiful. Leave me alone. Go away.
0: (laughs) Oh, I made the mistake of trying to introduce a bunch of friends who had never seen Star Trek before by starting them just chronologically through the movies and beginning with the motion picture. And I have to say, you know, by the end of the movie, maybe of the 10 friends that I had, you know, invited to come see this thing, Two of them were still watching the screen, <laughs> so uh, it, it really speaks to you and to me. Um, but uh, but maybe for a general audience, we should uh, we should start them off on <laughs> a different,
1: yeah, a Star Trek different Trek movie, I
0: suppose. But it
1: was a moment, <laughs> though; it was a moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about your involvement with helping to create Star Trek. I mean, that must just be the most exciting thing ever. So I learned about you from Professor Mohammed Noor, who we had on this show a couple of months ago to talk about the science behind Star Trek Discovery's fourth season. He's one of the occasional science consultants for the show. And he told me that you were instrumental in developing the language for this new alien species called Species 10C for season four of Discovery. And so just to recap for our listeners, Species 10C, they were those creatures from outside of our galaxy who live in gas giant atmospheres and were the creators of the dark matter anomaly, which our heroes have to stop from destroying planets in the Milky Way galaxy. And so meeting uh, the 10C was a first contact, unlike any other in Star Trek, thanks to the unique nature of their language, which was a combination of light pulses and chemical pheromones that took the crew multiple episodes to decipher. So Sherry, I would just love to hear the story of how you were approached to lend your expertise in extraterrestrial linguistics for Star Trek.
1: You know, it's rude to squeal other people are talking, but I'm such a fangirl of Star Trek that people saying things like that. I just, yeah. Okay. So um I'm a, I'm on the the board of directors of messaging extraterrestrial intelligence international, Medi International. It's a little group of folks, you know, kind of expanded group of folks and, and it has several goals, one of which is to think about well, what kind of message would you send through a radio telescope? What, what, what would that be like? How could you do that? What are the? How can you unthink yourself deeply enough so that you could create something that's not human-centered enough uh, that maybe someone that's not a human could understand it, given that, by the way, we have no idea what they're like. So it's a group of these amazing, smart, capable, passionate scientists and philosophers, all these kind of good folks. And they're, they're, they have corollary goals like, how do we make sure that the earth is around long enough that if we send a message to a star, I don't know, 200 light years away, that could maybe we still be alive in mm. 400 years when the answer comes back, just like those heartbreaking kind of like yeah. at this point with everything going on, you think, well, I don't know. I, I used to think, ah, shut up. Of course. What are you, wait, don't be all gloomy, boomy at me. <laughs> but you know, now I'm kind of thinking, I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. So it's, it's a serious effort. And i um, we just need to up our science education game and up our cooperation game and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I'm hanging out at a, I guess it was at a board meeting with Doug Vakich, is the president of Medi International. And again, just a true believer and a really smart guy. And it's that classic combination of smart and nice that I really love, right? And... Um, Anson Mount is on our board of directors also. That's
0: right. Yeah. I was going to ask if you've ever had any interactions with him through the Medi stuff.
1: Uh, you know, we've been on the same phone calls. I don't want to bug him. He's a cool guy. <laughs> I don't know. I got nothing to say. He seems like an awesome human being. Um, And so the opportunity came through. The, they were looking, Star Trek was looking for people. And since Anson's on our board and he knew that there were linguists on our, on our board, me and Doug, uh, who is a psychologist by training, but does everything. He asked if I would like to participate in finding out maybe if I could possibly be helpful. And when I stopped screaming, I said, "Why, well, yes, of course, <laughs> Dr. Package, I'd be delighted to participate in any way that is pertinent and relevant to cause. Um, and I got on a Zoom call with uh, just, you know how you really hope people are going to be nice when you've got them kind of in your head is
0: uh-huh, really nice. Uh-huh.
1: Oh, these are the Star Trek people. And they are actually really nice. Just, you know, we we met some of the writers and um, some of the producers, Michelle Paradise, one of the producers who is just incredible. And uh, yeah, so they, they explained what they wanted us to do. And then they said, well, okay, play, what can you come up with? It was kind of like everybody's idea of what it might be like. It really actually is like that. <laughs>
0: Wow. Yeah, so I'd love to hear more about those discussions, right? I mean, when Captain Pike says, "Please help out," <laughs> of course you ah! rise to the occasion. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me about some of the aspects of the 10 language that you contributed to.
1: Okay, so first off, I think maybe I don't know, but not the most fun. It, it was all really fun. But one of the things we had to do was generate wild ideas. This is my favorite thing in the whole world. Like just come up with what could it be? We want something that is going to crash the universal translator because all linguists hate the universal translator. Because <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, learning languages is so much fun. It's so exciting. And you, it's just so transformative to actually learn to speak another person's words. It's, um, it's, and it's such an important peacemaking, strong thing to do. I mean, everybody get out your duolingual and just go for it, right? Learn language. But and I get it. I get it. Nobody wants to sit for an hour and listen to somebody learn verb structures, right? It's just, <laughs> from the inside, it's really fascinating. From the outside, it is paint drying. But they wanted something that would for real crash the universal translator and really force people to cooperate and to really think about just what, what alien is. Uh, because I think, I think that we get those of us who love science fiction, we just sort of get, oh yeah, there's another alien. I don't know, this one's got two heads. I don't know, this one's got three tails. I don't know, you know, this one, whatever, is silicon-based, whatever he is. And so they they said, well, we want something that's really, really big so that we feel insignificant and just unlike anything that's ever happened before. So <laughs> there's a lot of sensible, smart people there. I I may have been the the loose cannon. I just started generating any idea that came into my head, and we ended up with what I think was exactly the right combination of something that was wholly intuitive, which was the hydrocarbons that that were sort of chemical, the, the chemical causes of emotion. And they were like, well, we can have a language built on that. And I'm like, you know what? You can't have an emotion really that says take three steps to your left, turn around, grab my cup of coffee and bring it to me. I mean, that's not an
0: emotion. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's a whole different thing. It's, you know, it's like when people say music is a language. Uh, you know, music is a, it's a way of conveying some information, but it can't tell me where my coffee is and it can't, you know, it can't tell me where my cat's gone. It doesn't, mm-hmm. that's not the kind of information that it conveys. So, so we had to have something else and we had to have something that would crash the universal translator. So it couldn't just be uh Klingon, right? Because right, right. if you've looked at Klingon, it's cool and it does sort of cheekily defy some some things that we think of as universal in languages-ish. Um it's it's kind of cheeky. I like it. It's fun, but it's not that weird.
0: Not mm-hmm. really.
1: Because people can learn to speak it, right? I mean you can have I we had a when I taught us in a linguistics class we had Andrew Strader who translated a bunch of Hamlet into Klingon. And I asked him, I said, okay, look, this language to me as a language looks really weird. How the heck fluent are you? Can you just say things? And so he just he just said things to me in Klingon. <laughs> um, easy as you please, right? So it doesn't defy, there's nothing about Klingon that is not human-based. And, you know, to be fair, that wasn't his goal, right? Mm-hmm. So we couldn't just go, I don't know, talk backwards. I don't know, have 650,000 words for shades of green which is literally one of my suggestions, just have more words. That would crash the universal translator because you wouldn't find patterns. Just have it go too fast. Have it go too slow. Have it be too detailed. Have it be, you know, whatever. All those things, Uh which are ways of taking one parameter of language and tweaking it and, and saying, well, what would happen? But we didn't want that because then you could just tweak one parameter maybe or pull more computers online and the universal translator would go, okay, 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 I got it. I mean, it used to build a little little dramatic tension while the universal translator works out its thing and then it does it and then boom. Um,
0: Yeah, I'm imagining like a progress bar going slower than usual, (laughs) but eventually getting there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just at the right moment before the galaxy is destroyed, it pulls it (laughs) out. So so we needed something uh, that was an attempt to sort of break outside of what we generally think of as language. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, not that I'm of that alien race, but I'm pretty sure that what they established is not with the, with the, with the numbers and, the, and the, the little lights moving stuff, is not their actual language. That was a thing, an intermediate language that humans and the aliens built together to facilitate communication. Whatever they do for their language, it's not that. But that's exactly the sort of thing that we think of when we're talking about communicating with an extraterrestrial race, right? We don't, we can't learn their language. We don't expect them to learn ours. So we build this mathematical thing between us so that we can convey the information that we wanted to convey. And luckily being face-to-face has great advantages. So you can you can point to things literally and you can include some little hydrocarbon. So, so as I, if I were doing it, message from a telescope would have to say this is not equal to that and try to cross my fingers and hope that they will think that not equal means bad Mm. or unreliable or something right i would rely on their on them drawing the right conclusions
0: that's so interesting that you're uh bringing in i think they called it a bridge language in the show this like language that would be constructed that is neither party's true language, but something that each party could communicate through, like a third language. Yes. Three of hydrocarbon A, one B, then one A. Four A's, one B, three A's. Here we have four A's, one B, two A's. That's the pattern. The first group of A's is always larger than the next, indicating that the B compound in the middle means greater than. Now there are other patterns as well. Mr. Saru? Uh, simply put, uh, they are trying to teach us a bridge language, such as Linkos. Exactly.
1: Linkos? A language based on math. The 21st century Earth organization, Medi, predicted that it would be helpful in extraplanetary communication. The Tensee must think that their language is too complicated for us to understand, so they're using this simpler one. They're reaching
0: back. From here, we can build all sorts of communication. If-then statements, complex logic... You know, so one of the questions I had for you was that, uh, you know, I imagine that if aliens visited Earth tomorrow and they weren't of the doomsday variety, you know, they actually wanted to speak to us, whoever is in charge, President Biden or whatever, would call upon you um, <laughs> to try to help decipher their language. Is is this kind of step of building a bridge language actually something that you would take um, following basically what the the discovery did?
1: I don't know. Um, If they were right there, it'd be different, right? Because Mm. there are monolingual field methods that might be more direct. Like, we can't, you can't just do it like you would do with people. Like, I could not assume that if I point at something that they would know what pointing is. They need, like, physically, how do you indicate an object in your room? You point at it. Well, right. I don't. I don't do very much pointing as a blind person. I do. I only do pointing as a courtesy, um, uh, <laughs> and and I'm not all that accurate. So, in my linguistics classes, sometimes for a midterm, I bring in a person that speaks a language I don't speak. And there we are together at the front of the classroom and I bring in a bunch of rocks and sticks and books and whatever. I've got a little sack of stuff that I bring. And then without dropping back into English, because, you know, I know the person speaks English because they're a student here. So, So without dropping back into English, we start working on their language. So I'll pick up a rock and I'll make a, what the heck is this face at them? And then they'll give me a word. And then I will assume that's a word for rock. And then I'll phonetically transcribe that. And then I'll get a bunch of other objects and then I might get two rocks and I'll make my, what the heck is this face at them? And hopefully they'll say rocks or two rocks mm. or something. And then in about 20 minutes, we can make sentences, right? We can say things like, I eat the rock, I throw the rock, I drop <laughs> the rock. It's important to be super goofy. So, but 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 we rely on all these things when we're doing that. We rely on, I pick up a rock and make a face. She knows what the face means. She doesn't think I'm threatening her with the rock. She doesn't think I mean my hand. She doesn't automatically think that I mean, I want the word for the act of picking something up. She automatically thinks that I want a word, not a description and not a whole description of what I'm doing or not her emotional reaction to what I'm doing or not the color of my shoes. You know, I just make all these assumptions that help me with that process. of okay. So even if they were there in front of me, it wouldn't be that easy because I would be all thinking, well, I, I can pick this rock up, but what, do we, do we even understand that we're doing language right now?
0: Mm.
1: Maybe they think we're dancing. <laughs> Maybe there's <laughs> Some kind of ritual um, greeting that they assume automatically that people will go through that I do wrong. So we could try to learn one another's languages that'd be a thing we could do. That would maybe be my first attempt if we were face-to-face because doing something more abstract um, is more abstract.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah. But I guess the discovery crew was forced to do that abstract thing because they couldn't really come face-to-face with species Tensi right. given that the Tensi live in gaseous atmospheres and float around. Right, Exactly. You know, I'm familiar with this idea called linguistic relativity in which people who speak different languages are said to experience the world differently simply because they have a different language to process it with. Do you think that species 10c would think differently from us and perceive reality differently from us just because they have a different language?
1: I would put the causality in a different place. Mm. So humans... I mean, we have to do some language learning, and what we know from the psycholinguistic literature, what we know from not just thinking about this, but studying this, is that a different human language will cause you to remember things slightly differently, and it can cause you to categorize things slightly differently, and it will force you to express some things in one language that you don't have to express in other languages. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I make a sentence in English, I've got to always pretty much put tense on my verb. You always know something about time. That is not the case. It's not that they don't know about time. They live in the real world, but because of other languages, the time is not quite as prominent. But we share the same world and we're not uh, we understand one another, even though our languages are different. But one of the reasons that we understand one another is that our cognition is similar in that we share the same physical world. We largely share the same body shape at the macro level, right? We, we have mm-hmm. um, our, our culture and language are constructed by people who share the same sensory inputs. So we don't need words in any language for, you know, the feeling of a radio wave hitting your, the side of your skull. Huh,
0: right? Yeah, we, yeah.
1: We don't need that. And so we don't even think about that. So if the aliens and this is this is a, a I think a pretty standard assumption in xenolinguistics if the aliens are humanoid and they live on a rocky planet with an oxygen atmosphere and they're kind of like us-ish or maybe even if they have three legs but they're still kind of like us-ish that those languages they would think ish sort of like us and we would eventually be able to learn their languages we might always culturally feel weird when we're there visiting but we would mostly get it but if you've got an intelligence that has evolved with a whole different set of physical um not physical laws because science is going to be the same right but 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 if, if their environment if their physical environment is really different if they are if they live underwater and they are octopuses, how does an octopus perceive the world that's the question and then how does that perception get crystallized into language
0: is this what people call embodied cognition um yeah
1: The idea of embodied cognition is that we are beings in bodies. We are not minds floating in open space. We have sensory systems that allow us to experience bodies that we interact with on the daily basis. And this affects how we think about the world. I mean, there there are questions in my mind about how does a cat think about the world, not only because it has a different brain, but also because it has a different body, right? How does it feel? How does it feel to be able to walk around on these, those little feet and have that little fur? And what is that like? I don't think it's, it's maybe not hugely different. I don't know what the subjective sensations are like, but whatever those subjective sensations are like, they shape your understanding of the world around you. So if all the input to your system is different, there's no reason to expect the system to be the same, right? So if this if the input is similar, then your interpretation of the input could be similar and then your expression of your subjective experience that is your language could be similar. But if your embodied experience is a jellyfish floating in the ocean, or if your embodied experience is an AI with nobody, what does that mean about the way you think about the world? if you live in a different sensory world, then you probably live in a different cognitive world. And we should toss in here how your brain works. What is the neurology like? Do you have nerve cells in your brain like we do? And how do they interact? All that kind of stuff would also affect your cognition.
0: Yeah. Maybe this speaks to the vast difference in the way that humans and the Q perceive the universe, right? Because Q technically doesn't have a body. (laughs) Q is one of those just floating pieces of consciousness, I suppose, and uh, is able to access the universe in ways that we can't even begin to imagine.
1: I suppose. And I wonder about that. So, uh, I mean, I feel like there's a little bit of hand-waving with Q because once he gets a body, he's pretty good at it.
0: Yeah, true.
1: (laughs) Um, So is is he badly written or is he smarter than I think he should be.
0: <laughs> we'll leave that as an open question.
1: I'm not here to like lip off to the queue because I don't want my house to turn into a jelly bean. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so I was really resonating with what you were saying about when you were in this meeting about how to generate this language that is so different from ours that it would break the Universal Translator. And you were talking about the role of creativity in that process. And I think that that's super important to just be able to inject that creativity into into even science. So like in astrobiology, I think it's always very useful to try to question our assumptions. Like when we look for evidence of life on another planet, biosignatures, signs of life out there, we have to be very careful about not assuming certain characteristics of life as we know it here on earth are universal, just because we see them here on Earth when they might really be peculiarities of life on Earth. I assume the same is true of alien languages, that there might be some kind of um, universal essence of language, but then beyond that, language can take all sorts of different forms.
1: I have so many things to say in response to what you just said.
0: <laughs> go for um, it.
1: So, first off, that that idea of creativity within astrobiology is super essential. I, I feel like our our job is to keep unthinking ourselves. Like, go back every Thursday and look at the last six assumptions you've made and unmake them, and then see what happens, because there's wow. so much that we just that just happens in our heads. Yeah. That we don't think about, and I can't even give you an example because I'm not thinking about them. You know what I mean? Like the, mm-hmm. the things that you assume are so freaking subtle and so pervasive that they're really hard. They're really hard to weed out. So when, I mean, this is, this is, this turns out to, it, it was a big comp, there's a big complicated story behind it, but it's kind of a minor effect. So when I was coming into this area of study, I was frantically reading all the SETI literature because I didn't want to look stupid. I just didn't want to look foolish in front of people who knew Carl Sagan, right? That was my that, that kept going through my head. You are going to talk in front of people who knew Carl Sagan. Please don't make an ass of yourself. Please, please. And so one of the things that kept cropping up in all of the in the in the literature that I was reading at that time was that any intelligence sufficiently complex to develop technology would necessarily have some analog of human visual perception. So no blind aliens allowed. And I thought as a blind human, that was a big WTF moment for me. Like, seriously, you guys, I get it. I get it. A vision is cool. It's turned out to be super useful. You know, I'm not going to lie. It's, 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 as one of my, as one of my colleagues said, it does present certain logistical advantages. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we just have to start systematically uncoupling ourselves from these assumptions that because we've done a thing the way we've done it, it will be done that way by everybody, right? So what if you trace that back? What if you follow the path of, say, technological development from can I make a fire through can I build a telescope if you just eliminate one factor? I'll just eliminate vision. I'll keep everything else the same on my planet, but I just won't have visual input. What does that mean? How is science going to develop? First off, are they going to survive? And then mm-hmm. when they do survive, because I'm here to say that I strongly believe they will, um, when they do survive, how are they going to think about the world and how is that going to influence the acquisition of science? Human science started with mathematics, medicine, and astronomy, sort of, right? And mm-hmm. But if you take one of those out, no astronomy. There's no lights in the sky. You're not going to use that to develop your powers of prediction. You don't even know there's lights in the sky. What does that do to the course of scientific development? And I did. This was really fun. I wrote about it a little bit. And once you reach a certain level of technological development, maybe it doesn't matter because eventually I would build, you know, the self-driving car. But along the way, your conception of things is shaped by those realities, right? Right. So then what else am I assuming? And I I was thinking, the other thing I was thinking about that I was really struck by when you give this talk about creativity is so who was in the room when we were doing this Star Trek language development, frenzy, joyful moment, and were the people different from one another? And if they were different from one another, did everyone feel the same liberty to speak or the same willingness to float a crazy idea given their history, given how meetings can go, like, was my crazy idea as a blind woman going to be shot down faster than the crazy idea of one of my colleagues who's a straight, cis, white, able-bodied dude, right? So did I feel, I mean, that and that is always the question that I want to ask when we get into these brainstorming sessions is, And I'm not trying to drive everybody crazy with the details, but actually I'm trying to drive everybody crazy with the details. Because if we have people in there who are like, oh, I'm not going to say that for whatever reason, then we've just cut ourselves off from maybe, I don't know, maybe the thing that would be completely useless, but maybe the thing that's totally key. Right. The stuff we do about inclusion and diversity is maybe the thing that will save the planet because we don't know who's going to have the next idea and it's awfully subtle because i am not particularly shy i feel like i have the right to speak but it's pretty darn easy to shut me down if i get into a room of i don't know a bunch of people a bunch of take the worst example like a bunch of sighted people all looking quickly at screens of data flipping through really fast and talking really loud and double that if they're all guys. And double that again, if they have different degrees than I have. And I might have the exact right idea that we need, but do I have access to all the information they have? Do I feel like I have the right to speak? If I think they're completely wrong, do I say so? Or do I just go, well, of course they know. I mean, of course they know. I, just, I don't want to be a pain in the ass. I'm. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and I think in what we have right now in science is a lot of people going, it's fine. It's okay. I don't, it's fine. I don't. I don't, I don't really need to be there in the room mm-hmm. in the same way that everyone else really needs to be there in the room. And some of that is systemic, some of that comes from the room, some of that is direct messages that we get from the room, and some of it is just sort of your lived experience, right? If I'm right. walking down the street and people don't even believe that I can cross the street, I absorb that information. That's data. I get the data. And so then when I go to a scientific meeting, I've just gotten data, you know, if I'm in a if I'm in a wheelchair and I can't get through the door, That's data. That right there is data. It says, well, you know, your cool idea is so unimportant that you don't even you're not even we're not even going to let you in because we're pretty Mm. confident you're not going to contribute.
0: If you're intrigued by where this conversation is going, you are in for a treat. Dr. Sherry Wells-Jensen will be back on our next episode of Strange New Worlds, where we'll discuss her research on disability and inclusion in space exploration. And, of course, its relationship to Star Trek. I learned so much from Sherry about language today. Something that I'll be thinking about for a long time is this connection between mind and body. Our brains are physical organs that co-evolved with the rest of our bodies, and our language is deeply intertwined with the physical senses that we have or don't have as humans. It may not be so unbelievable, then, that the Universal Translator can decode most alien languages in Star Trek because most aliens in Star Trek are humanoids, like us. It makes sense that Klingons and humans would construct relatively similar languages compared to the languages that any humanoid species would create versus the language that the 10C would use. Now, the question of why there are so many humanoids in Star Trek is another matter altogether, but my conversation with Sherry today will forever change how I see language learning in Trek and in my everyday life. I also love Sherry's philosophy of unthinking ourselves. That advice greatly echoes something a mentor in grad school told me, that in science we must be ready to unlearn as much as we are eager to learn. That's because science is designed to be a self-correcting process. New data can always derail old theories, and you've got to be willing to accept that when it happens instead of hanging on for dear life to a way of thinking that you're comfortable with but is demonstrably incorrect. It can take a lot of work to admit when you are wrong, but it's absolutely necessary to the functioning of science. And Sherry's unthinking advice takes even more bravery. Whether or not you're getting any new data, you should always go back and re-examine your starting assumptions about language, about life, and about the universe. Is it absolutely true that an alien would interpret my wave as a greeting rather than a threat or an attempt to taste the air? Must biology necessarily be cellular in nature, or are there other ways to create a distinction between a living system and the environment? Your homework is to take a moment to re-examine one assumption of yours. Is coffee really the best way to wake up in the morning? Could I learn more from an audiobook than a physical copy? Must all odd-numbered Star Trek films be bad? (laughs) Well, with that, take care, everyone, and thanks for listening to Strange New Worlds. Until next time, see you out there. (laughs)
1: I'm just, I'm just super psyched that like I changed a word or two that got spoken in a Star Trek episode. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to say what they were.
0: Okay. Okay. I feel
1: really, I feel really, really pleased with myself. I would too. Yeah. And the process was amazing. The people were incredible.